Welcome to Zooming In, a show about the lives and feelings of regular people who are like you and me, people seeking connection and love, people who are just muddling along trying to be human. I'm your host, Sison Kim Simang. Um, I'm Eduardo. I am Brazilian. I've migrated to Australia about just over six years ago. Yeah, grew up uh, surrounded by family. When I think of my childhood, I just think lots of people. So always uh, with family, lots of cousins, lots of uh, aunties and uncles. That was the dynamic there. And also a very different family, I suppose, as well, that would stand out a little bit, just because Southern Brazil is notoriously so white, like Italian, German kind of thing. And obviously our family was not. So that's sort of the environment I grew up in. When people think of Brazil, many will think about its rich cultural traditions, its striking natural beauty, and of course, football, the beautiful game. But beyond Carnival, the Amazon, and Pele, Brazil is hugely diverse. It's a country with a complex socio-political history and a deep class divide. Eduardo's background is African-Brazilian. This is kind of unusual for someone from southern Brazil, where the majority of the population is white. It's also pretty unusual to find someone of Eduardo's background in Australia. The profile of the Brazilian migrant tends to be highly educated, upper middle class, and of European ancestry. Put simply, a lot of the time, the Brazilians who can leave the country have money, an education, and really crucially, access to a European passport. While this is a story for many, it certainly isn't Eduardo's. When I was born, we weren't really even working class. We were surviving class, basically. I was born into a very humble, poor family. And yeah, we made it into working class. We yeah, were able to well, have access to opportunities and all that. Eduardo had been provided a lot of opportunities that other African Brazilians would never dream of. He knuckled down and he studied his butt off in primary school, gaining a scholarship to a private school, something that his parents would never have been able to afford. Having done well at school, Eduardo was able to gain entry into a highly competitive public university. In Brazil, public universities are considered top of the higher education hierarchy, and they most definitely serve the wealthy. So getting into university was a really big deal. But none of it happened by chance. Every step was part of a plan, a plan that Eduardo's mom and dad had mapped out for his life. As a poor African-Brazilian family, they knew that they had to work hard for every single opportunity. So they planned each step, nurturing Eduardo's academic talents so that he could make the most of a system that so often excluded kids like him. I remember one of the first things was just the shock of well, classic teenagers were going to hang out at the shopping center. The amount of cash that their parents would give to them just for that like afternoon out and how much I had for myself it was it was just okay you have a yeah food shop all there in your hands right now and you're just gonna yeah splurge on whatever for Eduardo this meant having to learn from a really young age how to navigate spaces that were really different from the ones he grew up in with people whose lives were drastically different from his he often felt like a fish out of water People in private school would have uh, maids at their house every day, cleaning, cooking their food, cooking their lunch. Whereas for me, yeah, family members, it could be the people doing that service, right? So that was a, a big a contrast as well. 
teenage years you want to fit in and, and yeah you're embarrassed about your family about your parents and then there's another layer here right of like oh, yeah <laughs> race class they can't know i'm like that poor that there's that difference there so challenging challenging to say the least and also uh, with the contrast with that and navigating that in the private school and then going back home and developing all these no interests that my family thought were weird or odd because I was so much in, involved in that new environment. So all my, and this was formative years as well, right? So the stuff that I was trying to get interested in, uh, the stuff that I was reading about, what I wanted to do, because I was open to a whole world of possibilities that, that at that point weren't necessarily accessible to me. But I know that there was all this other stuff that people thought about and that people wanted to do. And it was very, very, very different. And I, I was absorbing a lot of that private school environment. And it was just very different from, from back home, like the stuff that I would talk about, the stuff that I would, was interested in, the stuff that I wanted to go to. For my parents, it was a bit of like, who are you becoming? Like, who is this person? Because I was sort of caught in between. And at that age, not very equipped to, to navigate it all. Eduardo felt a distance starting to grow between him and his family. It wasn't a sense of conflict, but it was the kind of rift that forms when people's worlds start to slowly move away from each other. He was starting to become more aware of class. Specifically, he was becoming aware of the economic class he did not belong to. He wasn't like most of the other kids at school, the ones from rich families. Yeah, one thing that both my, my private school life and my life back home that, and my parents that they could agree on it was that, the, yeah, you're becoming a lawyer. This is it. There's a plan here. And I was good at following the plan. Well, when I got to law school, that was after being in private school for quite a long time. So I was fully indoctrinated in being entitled and feeling like I deserved a lot of things. So when I got to law school, there was none of this. Well, criminal law was just not an area of interest uh, for me. I was thinking that I was going to do business, international, all this glamorous law lifestyle, <laughs> which is a lie. Um, but I, yeah, remember just having this particular, well, first criminal law class where lecture was going on about the life of, of a lawyer. I was mildly interested, whatever. I have no interest in that at all. Up until a point where he started describing what a criminal lawyer would be like. So very tough, doesn't, yeah, take no, yeah, from anyone. And to be a criminal defense attorney, you, you have to be tough. You can't, you can't be gay. So that just really shook me as a, how dare you? So... I will become a criminal defense attorney. I can do this. Like, I've done so much already. Like, I'm sure I can do this as well. So very petty, very, very petty. But then this was the first contact, right, with, with criminal law. After that, it was, I was just kept being drawn to it more and more because it's actually quite fascinating. It's really interesting. And I developed a, a really good relationship with, with the unit, with that discipline. And it turns out that my first internship was in criminal law. So yeah, I was, well, it was time to get an internship, uh, applied, was able to, to get this, yeah, and it was in penitentiary. Eduardo's first internship in the jail surprised him. It was strict, as you would expect a prison to be, but he also found it to be a pretty open space, a space where he could really help people. So it was very, it's a very 
a strict space. It's a space where everyone knows the rules and what to do. People are very conditioned to look down, don't make eye contact. It, it's intense. It's confronting. But also in a penitentiary, you'd find classrooms, you would find doctor's rooms for yeah, health services, dentistry, that kind of stuff. Lots of books. You'd see books everywhere. So it, it's a, it's an interesting space. I suppose it goes it, yeah in contrast of what people expect of like people packed to the rim in so and I'm not saying that that doesn't, that doesn't exist in Brazil. It does. But yeah, my state at that time, and it could be different now, yeah, there was some yeah structure to it. The main thing was building trust between you and the person who's getting the service. So, for example, if you're in a room having a meeting with a person who's serving sentence, there would be the door, then the person serving sentence, then the desk, and then you. Between you and the door, the person would be there. So they have complete control of the room. And that's a trust thing. And no panic button. Okay, so it's it was about yeah building trust and making sure that you're there to to help them and all that. So just different from what people would expect. This new, less conventional approach to incarceration wasn't the only thing that took Eduardo by surprise. The people he was working with did too, the prisoners. Incarcerated population in Brazil is mostly black Brazilians. So this is Afro-Brazilian uh, communities, right? I remember walking in and just and just realizing that once again this very clear well ethnicity divide there because most of the people that were locked up looked like me or had the same life story that I had or came from the same postal code that I had that that I came from so there was a lot of identification there and that comes back to when I realized my yeah my my parents plan and why They, they were aware about that distance between myself and them happening because that's what they, they envisioned. That was the, the risk that they were willing to pay. You go to private school, you become a lawyer, so you, you don't fall into the spot that's been here waiting for you in terms of yeah, penitentiary, you know? The best picture for this, it's the, this, these street markets, right? So like very working class like think greasy food think the best food think like kids running around like you, you know what i'm talking about so sort of friday night is like you, you go there you get a cheap meal there's so many options it's yeah i miss that a lot it's such a yeah beautiful space but you wouldn't find anyone from my private school there so for example this this would be i'll be working in penitentiary already well in the custodial setting from the transitioning to community and you wouldn't find anyone from my from my law school there but i would find people from my public school there and then after i started interning at other penitentiary well you would find people from there So for people that have transitioned to community, they would be in the same recreation space as I was, where I go and get my food and spend time with my family. They'd be there as well. So, yeah, that's very grounding, I suppose. It's very, well, this is the, the reality. This is where, yeah, we belong and where we, we hang out. So, yeah, lots of those things. You see, you, you start to see yourselves in the same spaces, And but then when you're at work, you're in very different uh, positions. Much like his experience in private school, working in the jail reminded Eduardo of where he really came from. 
It's just that this time, he could see himself in those around him, in the inmates, rather than feeling like the odd one out. So many of these men were just like him. It wasn't long after he graduated that for the first time in a long time, he deviated from the plan, his parents' big plan. Love has a funny way of messing with even the best laid plans. So Eduardo met this guy. He was an Australian guy, and he was studying abroad in Brazil. They were young, but they were pretty serious about each other pretty quickly. They even registered for a civil partnership. And then when the time came for the Australian guy to go back home, Eduardo made the decision that he was going to go with him. It was tough for him to be away from his family, but the excitement of building a life in a new country with his new partner kind of made it worth it. He wasn't able to work as a lawyer in Australia. Even though he had trained as one in Brazil, the degree didn't convert. So he started working in the pharmacy industry, and he would go back to Brazil every couple of years to see his family, and so he was happy. In early 2020, things started to change. Eduardo's relationship came to an end, and he found himself, for the first time since arriving in Australia, kind of alone. And then, of course, COVID happened, and Brazil was hit really hard. For Eduardo, living in a place like WA, which was relatively untouched by COVID in terms of global standards, didn't necessarily bring peace of mind. Not when his entire family were back in Brazil, one of the countries that was hardest hit by the pandemic. It felt like life went on around him as usual, but the people he loved most were at extreme risk. It was unsettling, and it was anxiety-inducing. And once again, Eduardo felt like a fish out of water. Well, the result of the pandemic in Brazil putting Brazil back on the hunger map. So, yeah, either it's uh, food security or yeah, not, be, not having food available at all. What changed in terms of people are uh, able to to eat, really. Yeah, so now you'd see scenes that you hadn't seen in probably over a decade. So people lining up to, yeah, just get bones and people, yeah, and people changing their eating habits, not changing their eating habits, forced to eat, to, to change uh, what they put on their plates, right? So that's a big thing. And that's a sort of the the general thing that I would say, the biggest exacerbation. So yeah, people are hungry again, which hadn't happened in, in a long time. The thing about the pandemic is that it also exacerbated differences between the rich and the poor. Eduardo noticed how this was playing out back home in Brazil. He felt conflicted. Sitting in his comfortable flat in Perth, it felt like this was the theme of his life, always trying to manage the tension between where he had come from and where his education had taken him. The um, fact that in Brazil, the lockdown or being isolated or staying at home was something that you'd, you'd have to be able to afford, right? Because if there's no income support, you just can't. You're going you're gonna to get on the bus. If your work is informal, if, you, if it's in informal commerce, let's say, if you're out there, you have to be out there. Otherwise, you're not going to eat or otherwise you're going to line up to get scraps, right? So, so even in terms of the messaging, it was, well, the official messaging was always awful over there because, because yeah, lots of denial and, yeah, just uh, downplaying what COVID was. But if in the space of you should stay home, you should abide to lockdowns kind of thing, there were sensitivities around stay at home if you can. And then if you can means if you can afford it, which is something that you, you wouldn't see as much here, right? So here was stay at home, stay at home, that's it, that's the end of the sentence. So there was some sensitivity around that because you know that in Brazil the class divide is so so evident and you, yeah, you can't just be in your bubble as 
as much as you you can here in Australia. So that was, uh, yeah, the idea that not everyone can, not everyone will, and people have to work because they have to put food on their plates. So. The other thing that Eduardo noticed about COVID was how uniquely challenging it was for migrants. In terms of COVID, especially between uh, Brazil and Australia, there is a, a lot that happens in the background that you, that you can't just share because, of course, it's tough for, for everyone and it's being tough here as well. And, yeah, what's happening uh, over East is horrible. It, it's just come to realize how these last 18 months looked very different from Western Australians to Brazilians and uh, as well, because I, that's one of the things that I was talking to my brother. I can read all the news about Brazil. I had family that was very sick, but I, I'm not there. I haven't lived through through that. The stress that I had, like I, yeah, when my dad was in ICU, all that, that was stressful and I was worrying about it all the time, but I, I didn't live, live through it. And, and they know that. And there is sort of, a, there, and there is a disconnect there in itself. But all that worry, all that experience throughout, yeah, being in, being in contact with your family, it's not really something that it's easy to share or that people that haven't got family overseas can relate as much because it's just so very different. And yeah, I remember having, actually, one of the, when my, my dad was in the ICU and it was this really tough moment, WA was fine. There was nothing happening here, but I had to call my head office and, hey, I need a mental health day. This is not going to, like, I'm, things are really intense back in, back in Brazil. Cannot cope. I need, a, I need some time off. It, it was completely COVID-related. But, yeah, life around me was just normal. When Eduardo talks, it's clear how much love and admiration he has for his parents and his family. He recognizes how hard it must have been for them to let their son go, first to school and then to a university environment where he might be the only poor brown kid, and then to another country far away from them and far from everything that they knew. He's been through a lot, and he has this profound sense of perspective because of where he came from. They always knew that being in a completely different uh, environment with people that didn't uh, relate to me in my formative years would create a disconnect between me and them. They knew that the, that that could happen. They knew that that was happening, but that was what it would take for me to go through a different path because they were they were already aware that people that came from where we came from and looked like what we looked like. Would they had a high chance of ending up in prison. So that was that was their plan. They were always aware that there was this plan in the background, and that our choices were limited, and they, that we wouldn't have access to education, jobs, and other stuff. So that was the risk that they were willing to take in terms of that divide. Where I am now means very different things here in Australia and in Brazil. Some of my family thinks like I'm filthy rich when in reality I'm like, no, I'm just middle class in Australia. Um, but it's interesting because, and this is the conversation I was having with my dad on the phone uh, the, the other day, really. And it was that thing of how in this lifetime we went from like you like i'm giving up like a bath in the like in the outdoor sink or like kids at first parents at second to me now having meetings in sydney skyscrapers and then you just have to pretend that this is cool and normal when it's it's just such a big shift because you're in that boardroom you just 
pretend that this is, I do this all the time. Whereas in your head, you're like, I want to FaceTime my family from here and go like, look at this view, you know? In these moments, Eduardo is still this kid from a poor neighborhood, looking at the world going, wow, and wanting to share it all with his family. I'm aware of these experiences that happened in the in the last few years and that, that doesn't change who I am. And then when I go back to, when I talk about this divide, but I go back home, it's not like I'm made to feel like an outcast or I'm not part of the clan anymore. I'm very welcomed. And I think just being aware and being, and know that, and, and just having that reassurance when I go back there, I'm like, yes, I'm part of this. Okay, we're cool. But it's, that, it's definitely not something that will divide us. This is the thing about class. Even when you're lucky enough to get a good education and a well-paying job, when you manage to buy a house and accumulate some wealth, your background never really leaves you. You can move to another country and learn another language, but coming from a working-class background or knowing what it's like to simply try and survive, well, that stays with you forever. Eduardo never forgets. He never forgets where he's come from or what his parents sacrificed for him to be the person that he is today. Most of all, he never forgets the people back home in Brazil, those who are always there to take his call and check out that skyscraper view from all the way on the other side of the world. This podcast was produced by the Centre for Stories on Wajak Noongar Buja in Western Australia with generous funding from Lottery West. The Centre for Stories believes in storytelling as a way to build more inclusive communities. Special thanks to our storyteller for this episode, Eduardo. And to our production team, executive producer Cara Jensen-McKinnon, audio engineer Mason Velios, scripting and interviewing by Sison Kim Simang and Claudia Mancini. Head to centreforstories.com to listen to more stories or to make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks for listening.